You are listening to the Women of Wonder podcast, where we want to see Sister Soar. We hope that you are inspired by this message. So tonight, we're, we're continuing the WOW series on Ezra communities, which has been the theme of this year's seminars. But the focus in the words of WOW is we see in scripture meaningful relationships that were essential in transforming one's faith and also one's life into conforming to God's plans that ultimately points us back to God's justice in our lives and our communities. So tonight, we're going to be taking a special look at a very meaningful relationship in the book of Ruth. One that's probably very familiar to us. The storyline is familiar, right? But what I'd like to invite us to focus on tonight is a very unique take on thinking about Naomi and Ruth's relationship and including Boaz as a unique mentoring relationship and how this transformative relationship went on to influence many others in their lives. Some of our material tonight actually may be heavy. We are going to talk about grief and loss, and that may be triggering to some of us at different points in our time together. So actually, I'm going to encourage you to take some time to to care for yourselves if you need to. So I'd like to just allow us to have a time to pay attention to any emotions that come up for us during our time as we think and we, we enter into the story of Naomi and Ruth. I may not be able to chat with you while I'm doing this, so I'm not ignoring you, but that's what will happen. It's, it's kind of hard to multitask. So I'm going to share a PowerPoint and let me know if there's any issues seeing it or hearing me during this time. The book of Ruth opens up in the period that we know is the the period of the judges. And during this period of time in the Old Testament, we understand that in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this is actually the setting, the historical time period in which the book of Ruth takes place. And in the very first chapter, we actually learn quite a lot about Naomi's life, background information. We know that she left her hometown of Bethlehem in Judah with her husband, Elimelech, and their two sons, Malan and Chilion, because there was a severe famine in the land of Judah. We know that they went to Moab, which was one of the pagan nations that Yahweh, Jehovah God, had warned his people not to make alliances with. And we also know in the very first chapter that then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. And the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is in Ruth chapter one, verses three to five. Over the course of at least 10 years, Naomi loses her entire family. How old were you 10 years ago? Yeah, I just thought of that number two for myself. And where were you? What were you doing 10 years ago? When you think about where you were 10 years ago and where you are right now today, think about all that's happened since that point in time. Well, for Naomi, there was so much tragedy that struck And verse five, this is, she's left without her two sons and her husband. This verse really highlights Naomi's vulnerability. Women in the Old Testament, this this is a time period where this is a very patriarchal society. So women were protected first by their fathers 
and then by their husbands and then by their sons. So she had lost all of them. And on top of it, she was a foreigner in a foreign land. She wasn't in a familiar place. And though she and her family had moved to Moab, it's kind of unclear whether she and her family were had any kind of community. So maybe already you're connecting with some parts and pieces of her story. See, Ruth and Naomi, often when we read the scripture, this little book of Ruth, which is only four chapters long, sometimes we rush to kind of move forward with the story because most of us know how it, how it ends, how it goes on. And we may actually gloss over the fact that there were three women connected through the grief that they were experienced. Naomi had been widowed for 10 years before she lost both of her sons. At least that can be inferred in the first chapter. Ruth and Orpah, both of her daughter-in-laws, were widowed. And it's also very likely that Ruth was childless. Well, it's not likely. She, Ruth was childless. It's likely that she might have struggled with infertility. Or maybe she had miscarriages in the 10 years of marriage that we, we know she experienced. And so each of these losses, including the experiencing infertility, is actually a grieving process. And each grieving process is unique. So we have two women, Ruth and Naomi, both are widows, both are extremely vulnerable, and scripture doesn't really tell us how they move through the grieving process. But we're going to linger here in order to really consider that Ruth probably had observed how her mother-in-law, Naomi, had mourned the loss of Elimelech and had grieved, you know, the loss of her, her husband, how Naomi had moved into widowhood, and now how Naomi was mourning the loss of her sons. I wonder how that grieving process might have been for Naomi. And I wonder what Ruth was wondering as she saw the suffering that her mother-in-law had been experiencing. And so right now, I'm going to take a little segue into showing you what a grieving process might look like. This model was developed by one of my mentors. His name is Rand. And he basically incorporated the work of two authors. One is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. The other is William Warden. And they both write about grieving that process. But William Warden focuses more on the tasks of grieving. And Kubler-Ross is more known for her work on the stages or phases of grief. So I'm going to kind of walk us through this model. Hopefully it will be helpful in an attempt to begin to understand the long days that Naomi and Ruth must have faced, both in Moab, on the long journey back to Bethlehem, and even in the weeks and months that they spent in Bethlehem. So a definition that I've often used for grief is that grief is actually a reaction to change, any change that includes physical, psychological, and emotional uh, aspects. Why is grief a reaction to change? Well, because every change involves some kind of loss, even changes that we think are really great, really positive, like graduation, we celebrate, right? I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to graduating one day, but at a graduation, there's still some losses that we might be grieving. Maybe it's the loss of some friends we won't be seeing in the classroom anymore. Maybe it's the loss of a certain kind of status as a student, a certain kind of life that we got used to. Moving is a big change. I know someone in our circle tonight who just made a big move to New York City. And as exciting as that move is, as confirmed and affirmed by God and community as it is and was, there could be losses missing her former community or the environment. There, So with every change, grief is actually a reaction 
to some kind of change. It's not simply about death, although tonight we will spend a lot of time talking about death and dying. So in the middle of this model, you'll see losses. They can be acute, meaning it just happened. They could be long past, but there's something going on right in the middle. And in this phase one of grief reaction is it's a protective phase. It's a phase of shock and denial. It's protective because it can shield us from the full reality of the loss. Some people have called it numbness. Like, I can't believe this happened. Sometimes we tell ourselves, I'm dreaming. Sometimes it feels as if we are dreaming. And in many of our cultures, both in my experience, both in China and in the U.S., we tend to use words that try to evade the finality of a death. You know, passed away, passed on, went to a better place, those kinds of euphemisms. And throughout the grieving process, I want to remind us that these phases are not one straight line. We can move back into shock and denial at any time during the grieving process. We might feel like it's unreal in different moments in our journey. And I remember just sitting with a grieving widow recently who just kept telling me, like, I can't believe he's gone. I can't believe it. And it was just over and over and over again because her loss had been very acute. Then we go into this phase two, anger and guilt. It's actually really a normal, natural tendency for human beings to feel angry when faced with something as unpredictable as death. We might be angry at ourselves. If only I could have done something to prevent this from happening. If only I had been there, this wouldn't have happened. We may be angry with the person who is gone. Why did she leave me? We might be angry with God. God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't have let this happen. All of these are actually normal responses. But we might also feel guilty. We may remember the last time we spoke with this person and wish that we had said something different. Maybe we did something wrong and God is punishing us. For Naomi, and this is in verse 20 of chapter one, she says, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. We see, we can hear the anger, the despair even, and the um, confusion that Naomi is lamenting in this window into her heart through this verse. In the next phase, we call it mourning and hence the title of tonight. This is actually a more active phase of grieving. And it, again, this phase, mourning, can occur throughout the grieving process. This is not some kind of linear path. Experiencing the pain, engaging in practices that help us to remember the person we lost. It's very hard to do because pain really hurts. And as human beings, we try to avoid pain as much as possible. However, letting ourselves express our sorrow in ways that come to us, in ways that are natural to us, is actually the only path through the grieving process. And again, we, we might return to this, to mourning practices throughout the grieving process. This might involve looking at pictures. This might involve going to the favorite place of the person that we are grieving. This might involve going to the cemetery and, and spending time there. Naomi tells the women of Bethlehem not to call her Naomi anymore. Her name, Naomi, meant pleasant, but she tells them to call her Mara instead, meaning bitterness or bitter. During the grieving process, there can be such deep sadness, like the despair that Naomi is expressing to these women in Bethlehem, that it can actually resemble clinical depression. And that's why way back when people thought that grieving like this mourning was um, pathological. Like people diagnosed this as some kind of problem, but it's not. Grieving is normal. 
and it's natural. Then we get to this next phase of dealing with the environment. And what that all means is just, how do I live without the loved one? And, and that takes time. Learning how to live without this person involves so many, many adjustments in our lives. And if we kind of zoom out for a moment and think about other kinds of losses, learning how to live in a new environment without your former workplace, without um, your former friends in the church community that you're a part of, that takes time. It's uncomfortable. It's weird. It, it, there's lots of other emotions that get triggered. For one particular, another widow I was speaking with recently, it involved learning how to become, to be a single mom and working with a single income and all that that meant for her. For Naomi, we see again, still in chapter one, that she decides she's going to leave Moab and she's going to return to Bethlehem, going back to the place where she started her marriage and family. So that must not have been a very easy decision. And yet um, that would have been another big change that Naomi would have to adjust to. And then we have this phase called integrating. Here, one begins to have a sense of how the loved one who's lost can be a vital part of our memories, but not occupy such a central place in our minds and hearts. Here, there, there's some shifting. And as we continue to grieve, there may never be a full sense of acceptance. So notice that this phase isn't called acceptance because there may not be a complete sense of acceptance, but we may be able to narrate or tell about our loss in ways that have new meaning for us. This is the part where maybe we see how we've received something through this time of grieving that's special. Maybe it's the treasures in the darkness that Isaiah talks about. In, in the book of Isaiah. Maybe it's here that we, a testimony starts to form, one that we never would have experienced had it not been for these losses. Again, integrating this phase can happen throughout the grieving process, but it is a phase that when we more fully enter into, it's almost like a bit of a, a turning point, like a clearing in a forest. On the outside of the circle, there's four tasks that we're gonna talk about. And this is where William Warden writes, there are certain tasks of mourning that must be accomplished for equilibrium to be reestablished and for the process of mourning to be completed. So they go right alongside the phases. Task one is accepting the reality of the loss. So notice that it goes right next to that phase of shock and denial. And this is ongoing. It's ongoing acceptance that she's not here anymore and she's not coming back or I'm not there anymore. <laughs> And I am here now. It can involve multiple moments of reminding myself that the reality is that things have changed. And coming, according to Warden, when we need to really come to that full face with the reality of the death of a person and that that is part of healthy grieving. And uh, when I was in China, and even when I was in the US before I went to China, I used to provide grief education classes. And in, for parents, especially. And uh, one of the things we talked about was when talking with kids, with children, uh, especially under the age of 14, like it's especially helpful to use the actual words like died or dying or dead rather than euphemisms like she's sleeping or she went on a long trip because those words help us to actually complete this task one, accepting the reality of the loss. In the next task, it's about experiencing the pain. 
working through the pain. And society has a lot of messages about people being able to do this. You know, people may say, oh, she's handling this so well. I really haven't seen her crying. Well, crying is normal and crying is, is good. And cr- crying is, a, is like the appropriate response when we miss someone or when we're hurting, or when we're in pain. Since pain is so hurtful, it's normal for people to try to avoid it. But again, it is by doing this, by experiencing the pain, by allowing us to feel our feelings. I, I say this a lot with my clients, feel our feelings, feel all of our feelings. Unless we move through it, we can't experience this healthy breathing. Then we go on to task three, adjusting to an environment without. As you can see, task three is right next to that phase four. And here I'm wondering how Naomi and Ruth walked with each other on that long road back to Bethlehem, how they helped each other or how they just sat with each other experiencing the pain. And then eventually when they reached Bethlehem, what was it like to start doing the things that they needed to do to start adjusting to an environment that was completely new to Ruth? But for Naomi, this used to be her home, but she's coming back into a place. She's very different. And she no longer has her loved ones with her. So this is where we will get more into. We will explore more of Ruth's decision to go with Naomi back to Bethlehem. And in the fourth task, relocating and reinvesting, that's really not not so much physical relocating and it's emotionally relocating the, the deceased and continuing with life. So that's right alongside integrating. So grieving people do not give up their relationship with the deceased, but they find an appropriate place for the dead in their emotional lives, a place that will enable them to go on living effectively in the world. That's from Warden. So in this particular task, it's learning how to incorporate that loss, that relationship more deeply, how to remember that person. Actually, it's, it's kind of interesting. I was watching a little bit of the news and Chuck Schumer, the senator of our state, <laughs> he was being interviewed and he was sharing how he lost his father in November, this past November. And he said, um, but I always remember something that my dad told me about persistence. And he said something like, though my dad died in November, he was 99. Um, he, it's like he's sitting here with me right now in the interview. So I thought that was pretty amazing that here's Chuck Schumer talking about what it means to emotionally relocate and the the deceased. So that's what it kind of looks like and means, although it's different for each person. So you may be asking like, well, when is grief completed? When's it over? And there's no quick answer to this. It's kind of like asking the question of how high is up? In a sense, some of our grieving is never completed. And we need to realize that we may never return to some pre-grief state life individually in our families in our relationships in our culture is forever changed because of the absence of this person or because of other changes that we may be thinking about right now however we do regain an interest in life we do start to feel more hopeful we can feel happy again we can adapt to a new life, we can heal and experience hope. So overall, this process of grieving is about experiencing pain. It's about engaging with it instead of avoiding it. It's about creating or re-narrating 
telling our story, making meaning out of our pain, which is something we're able to do because we are made in the image of God. We are, we are his image bearers. So of a spiral is what I think of when I think of that. What I showed you just on the other slide was very neat. It looked like all the phases were laid out and all the tasks were all one, two, three, four, five, or four, four tasks. But actually in reality, if you stare at this long enough, you might get a headache, so don't do that. So it doesn't actually look a lot like this. This is very a convenient model for when we teach and talk, giving us some handles maybe. One of my former colleagues and I talked about how grief is like the waves that crash upon us when you're at the beach or in the ocean. And you can't tell when a big wave is gonna come and just suddenly like hit you in the face. You can try to jump the waves, um, but sometimes we're not successful. And sometimes the waves are calmer, but they, they still come. So when a wave of grief comes, we can't really control the waves, but we can learn to let them come and receive them. So I would like to suggest that Naomi and Ruth, and especially Naomi in this particular, we're starting off with Naomi here. She wasn't perfect and we don't need to be perfect as we walk with others in mentoring them. In fact, it's probably better that we are not perfect and it's, it's impossible to be perfect, right? But what we see here is that Naomi is not only not perfect, she's in probably the darkest part of her life. The, the darkest seasons of her life is when she's met Ruth, both after the loss of Elimelech and then the loss of two of her sons. Now we see that Ruth is also in mourning and both women are walking with each other. So one of the beautiful things I love about mentoring, spiritual mentoring and discipleship is that at some point, I never really look at these relationships as hierarchical relationships, but in some mentoring relationships, it may be that we've walked a little bit longer with Jesus and we're walking with someone who's new in their journey of following Christ. So like Naomi, she has been a faithful Hebrew woman who has known Yahweh. And we know that Ruth has met the God of Israel through being involved with Naomi and her family. Sometimes it's like that. Our relationships start off with us leading someone in their journey of faith because we're a little bit further along. But eventually, we end up influencing one another and walking with one another. And it is a really beautiful thing when that happens. And I remember learning about that in a class that I took in, at Gordon-Conwell in seminary called Advanced Discipleship, um, as if there could be such a thing. But our professor taught us that a someone who disciples sits at the feet of Jesus and sits at the feet of whoever they're discipling. And then one day, you know, the tables turn and we're just both sitting at the feet of Jesus together. I'm learning a lot from you, who I used to mentor. It's not because I'm better than you, uh, but there's so much mutuality in this relationship. So that's the picture that I have of Ruth and Naomi in their relationship. So what we're going to move into now is the fact that grief is a part of our lives. Think of the waves, the crashing waves, like a backdrop. This is the backdrop 
of the book of Ruth, the Naomi and Ruth story. And upon this backdrop of this crashing, relentless waves of grief, there are actually several very significant movements of what in in the Old Testament, um, in the Hebrew, is called hesed, or self-giving love. And I believe that this is an outgrowth of the relationships that that we see present in this book. First, Naomi and Ruth, and then including the last. Hesed is the Hebrew word in the Old Testament that appears more than 150 times to describe the love of God and God's character. It's essentially sacrificial love in action, and it's unconditional. It's more related to the covenantal love of the Old Testament that is literally God's promise being fulfilled to his people, unconditional. And it's often used to describe God's mercy, compassion, and faithfulness. And now as we move into movements in the book of Ruth, it's been said that our choices reveal more about who we are than our words. And I think we're gonna see that together right now. And so the first movement we're really gonna look at is actually something that Naomi says more than once. In fact, in these verses, 11 to 13 in the chapter one, this is the, this is the third time Naomi is telling her daughters, her da- sorry, her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, go back, like just go back to Moab, go back to your homeland. Uh, may the Lord grant you rest, each in the house of her husband. This is her talking to them the first time. In verse nine, she kisses them, They weep, they're crying. And both of them say to Naomi, no, we're going to go with you to your people. Then in verse 11, Naomi says, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Here, this is the second time Naomi is trying to persuade her daughters-in-law to go back. And then Orpah does go back. She kisses Naomi. She says goodbye. And then in verse 15, Naomi says this is the third time. Now she's only talking to Ruth. Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Just go. So in this act of hesed love, this self-giving love, Naomi, in the midst of all of her pain, she's in the midst of this grieving that seems endless. She tells her daughters-in-law she has their interests at the forefront. And she tells them to go because she knows she can't provide protection or food or shelter for them. And it's almost like she's crying out of her brokenness and despair. She's in the midst of the mourning phase of the grieving process. But even in the midst of her despair, her concern for Ruth and Orpah is very clear. 
she knows how each of them are so vulnerable now. And she's a woman who can be quite free with her emotions before the Lord. The hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. I wonder what Ruth was taking in when she saw her mother-in-law kind of wrestling with God and, and being so free. Wow, before the God of Israel, I could be angry. That's our first movement. Well, how does Ruth respond to her mother-in-law? I think we all know this is uh, where Ruth famously declares to Naomi her loyalty. And there's a turning point in Ruth's life where she places her faith and trust in the God of Israel. She says in verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Well, here, Ruth is literally throwing her future, her, her future prospects of security to the so-called wind, which is God, um, and even promises to Naomi that she's going to be with her even when she dies. This movement is completely unexpected. Ruth could have returned to her homeland, maybe gotten married again. She could have returned to everything familiar, but she didn't. In this movement of self-giving love, this sacrificial love in action, we see Ruth just um, putting it all aside. And that could mean that Ruth will die as a stranger in a strange land that she's never been to before. She might remain childless and widowed and even impoverished. So what do we see here? We see Naomi throwing everything away and we see Ruth doing the same. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So what exactly happens? Well, we know that the story goes that actually Ruth following Naomi back to Bethlehem does not go unnoticed by everyone else. Uh, the, the residents of Bethlehem know what she did. She's a foreigner, a Moabitess and a pagan. And she follows her mother-in-law all the way back to her, her home country. And then she goes to the fields to glean whatever is left over from the harvesters because Ruth arrives at the beginning of the barley and the, the barley harvest. And when you know, people who gleaned, gleaning meant that they were following along after the servants and just trying to pick up whatever was left over in the fields. This was for the poorest of the poor, this kind of work. It was backbreaking. It was very hot. Um, and, you know, in, a, in amazing God's sovereignty, she comes to Boaz's field. And the Boaz was a relative of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. And Boaz says to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. This is verses uh, 8, 12, 11, and 12. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. All that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband, 
has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. So here, Boaz shows favor to Ruth. He not only tells her to stay in his field, he actually, and you, you can read this on, on your own in chapter two, he tells, his, he tells her that she can drink water with the servants. He gives her a place to rest. He tells his servants to let her glean, don't insult her. He tells them to purposely pull out some grain from their bundles, leave it so that she can glean. And then later on in the chapter, um, she goes home and tells Naomi about her first day of gleaning. And Naomi says, wow. She says, um, this is in chapter two, verse 20. May he be blessed of the Lord, he meaning Boaz, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. The man is our relative. He's one of our closest relatives. And here, Naomi uses the word that in English we translate as kinsman redeemer. In Hebrew, it was goel. And this kinsman redeemer, according to Old Testament law, is someone who is a very close relative and actually has the, the role, the job, the responsibility to buy back or redeem for the sake of Elimelech's family. Um, they protect the interests of the, ne the needy members of the extended family. They might provide the, an heir to a deceased brother, redeem land that a poor relative sells outside the family, redeems a relative who'd been sold into slavery, and they might even avenge the killing of a relative. So the kinsman redeemer is a very, very significant term. So here, Ruth for seven weeks, from the barley harvest to the wheat harvest, she gleans in the fields of Boaz. And Boaz, you know, it, in the Old Testament law, Yahweh was very clear that the Israelites were to care for the weak and the poor by leaving some grain in the fields for them to glean, for them to gather. But here in scripture, in the book of Ruth, we see that Boaz goes the extra mile. In fact, Ruth's actions have inspired Boaz to actually bring shalom, which is uh, more than peace. It is like restoration. Um, it's, it's the way God intended for his world to be like, full of generosity and, and peace. Um, Ruth's actions actually inspire Boaz to demonstrate the generosity of God even more fully. Uh, he goes more deeply into fulfilling God's law than he was required to. And rather than simply painting this story like a romantic novel, you know, like this, because Boaz is attracted to Ruth, so he does this for her. Um, I, I, I would agree with Carolyn Curtis James. She wrote the book, The Gospel of Ruth. She suggests that Ruth's radical acts of obedience 
loyalty and self-sacrifice. In, in essence, hesed, roots hesed, kind of instigate or inspire further self-giving love and deeper obedience from Boaz to the Old Testament law. I remember sitting with someone recently who shared that when she met her husband, um, that they weren't married at that time, she just met him. She thought that she could become a better, like by being with him, she would be a better version of herself. Or she could be a, become the person that God really intended her to become just, just by being with him. That that was, and that actually what she said makes me think of what's happening here. That when Boaz was witnessing how Ruth's choices had brought her to Bethlehem, how she had chosen to be so dedicated and loyal and sacrifice for Naomi and Naomi for Ruth, I believe that this Hesed love instigated for Boaz a, a, a response of Hesed love. So it just keeps growing and going and going until we kind of get to this crescendo in the book of Ruth. In chapter three, we start with Naomi, who in verse one is like, okay, it's the end of the harvest now. My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman? It's, it's interesting that no, Naomi doesn't use the term goel, which means kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer has both legal and moral responsibilities attached to it. But she only uses the term kinsman here in, in verse one to two. So it's, Naomi is really looking out for Ruth's security for her future, thinking ahead to when Naomi dies. Naomi's a lot older than Ruth. And she's thinking about when Ruth is going to be alone. Naomi, this is from James's book. Um, Naomi seeks mercy, not offspring. Her objective is security for Ruth, not a child for her family. Here again, we see Naomi modeling Hesed. Like when she told Ruth to go back to your homeland, go back to Moab. Ruth goes ahead to do most of what Naomi instructs her in chapter three. But you'll notice that she does something a little bit different too. So Naomi told Ruth to go and sleep at the feet of Boaz and to wait there until he tells her what to do. When Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night on the threshing room floor, he says, who are you? This is in verse nine. And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a kinsman redeemer. So there's two things here to notice. One, spread your covering over your maid. First of all, is Ruth telling Boaz basically to marry her? And then she invokes the kinsman redeemer title. She uses, Ruth uses the term go out, but Naomi didn't use that term. Okay, so here we have Ruth, who is likely barren, who's left her homeland, who is very poor. And she is here taking a huge risk. For what reason? It's for the sake of her mother-in-law, Naomi. 
Again, this is self-giving love in action because Ruth is voluntarily sticking out her neck in a lot of different ways. She's exposing herself to humiliation. He might totally reject her. Um, she's been barren. So here she's putting herself on the line, proposing marriage to Boaz. She hasn't born children when she was married before. So Ruth, out of her poverty, is giving away all that she has. She's literally, this is a moment for her. This is like another echo of the moment she said to Naomi, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go with you. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Wherever you die, I will also be buried. And how does Boaz respond? Well, you know, actually Boaz could have walked away. He was not the closest go out. He was, he was not really the closest kinsman redeemer. And on, according to Leverite law, he also could have walked away because he was not a brother of the deceased. He was probably a cousin, but he didn't. So I'm going to just quote what Carolyn Curtis James says here, because I think it's great. The heart of Boaz here is a flame, not with testosterone and the anticipation of satisfying his sensual pleasures in the arms of a young woman. His heart is fueled by the same hesed and self-sacrificing passion that compelled Naomi to send Ruth to him this night and that drove Ruth to edit Naomi's script. He is his brother's keeper, even a brother long dead. Boaz displays the same love and sacrifice that lives again generations down the road in his descendant, Jesus of Nazareth. And so he says to Ruth in verse 11, now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Truly, the ancestors of Jesus demonstrated hesed love, constantly pouring out for one another. And the more they sacrificed and gave, the more love multiplied, the more love grew. It's almost like they were inspiring one another, trying to outdo one another in Hesed love. So this, this friend mentor is like allergic to shellfish. And she went to great lengths to like secure some really delicious crab for myself and also someone else, another guest in her home that like she had just met. And she sat with her own meal, which was not the delicious crab that we were all enjoying. But she sat with her own meal while we were wrestling with the crabs, you know, smacking our lips, like just eating really well, enjoying every moment. But not one moment of complaint or grumbling escaped her lips. She was like truly satisfied to see us being so happy and enjoying. Um, I really doubt that she knew that I was observing her, but I was. I was just kind of taking it in. Because I realized like she could have chosen to eat any other meal. I think we would have all been okay with it. But she didn't. She chose to sacrifice for us. Now, this is like a small example of how Hesed love may appear in our daily lives. But uh, I believe that it does show up 
and that we are we are called to live in this way. We see Hesed love showing up as self-sacrificial love in action, mercy, compassionate, unconditional love, being poured out for others. We see this showing up in the midst of a backdrop of grief and loss and suffering and pain. I find that surprisingly refreshing in the world in which we live today. We see a much pain and we've experienced much pain, especially over the past two, three years, walking through a pandemic, the waves and waves of endless violence, you know, the polarization, the um, tragedies, the losses. And yet God in his faithfulness gives us glimpses of his kindness. Um, and these movements of Hesed from ordinary people loving one another is the point of the story. We hope that you enjoyed this teaching. We are a community that walks alongside women to uncover and affirm their calling through prayer, teaching, and celebration. Visit womenofwonder.us to learn more.